Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of the Extant Podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number 14, where we'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 3 of the CBS summer series Extant. This episode is entitled Empathy for the Devil, and it aired on July 15th, 2015. And Empathy for the Devil was written by Les Boehm and was directed by Dan Lerner, both veterans of the team from Season 1, so got a little of that earlier flavor. and. A great episode again, Dave. I t- tell you, I think so far they've upped themselves each week, and I always like to see that and, and be able to mention that on our podcast. Yeah, and I'm big on titles, and, and certainly if you are a child of 70s music, you know that's a reference to Sympathy for the Devil. But you know, in, in this case, I think one of the questions that comes up, who is the devil? Oh, good point. Yeah, I didn't think of it that far. But yeah, the title must be referring to somebody there, right? Yeah. I'll have to see if it comes up in our discussion. <laughs> but we have a lot of news to share with you tonight. First of all, Dave, I guess we're doing a time switch. Yeah, and it's certainly to my advantage. <laughs> you like to be able to watch it live if you can. But... I like to be in bed by 10 if I can. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's going on? Okay, they're going to switch up Extant and Criminal Minds starting next week. Extant's going to now air at 9, and then the rerun of Criminal Minds will air at 10. And apparently it's going to be that way for the rest of the season. Sounds good to me. Well, especially since, didn't we say we have a double part one coming up soon? I think it's August 5th. Yeah, somewhere in the middle of the of the run. So uh, they're going to go 9 to 11, I assume, on that one. So, yeah, that's good. I review Extant for Den of Geek as well, and sometimes I can be up quite late writing that. Uh, review and now I don't have to worry about that. So that's good. Yeah. And in just podcast news, I guess you can say, I want to apologize to some people who sent us some feedback last week and we didn't get them for whatever reason. There was a glitch in the feedback page, but Daryl assures me that it's fixed and was hopefully temporary. So we're going to read a couple of older feedbacks tonight that actually still apply quite nicely. So I'm not too worried about them being uh, out of place. And hopefully we'll be on track. And it turns out, Dave, we're not unloved as we thought. <laughs> we actually do have some people who are trying to contribute to our podcast. Yes, we do. Some new faces and some returning vets. That's right. So uh, glad to see those. And we'll share with those those with you later. But I have a little gripe, Dave, and that is... What's with all the previews and promos and sneak peeks that this show does before the episode airs? Have you noticed? I have noticed, of course, in keeping with my longstanding approach, I don't watch them, but I have noticed. So I don't know. You know, again, I'm always amazed at how many people love to be spoiled. So I don't know, drumming up interest for the show. Sometimes they choose it well. Like one of the sneak peeks this week was just the scene with Molly and J.D., in their apartment when JD is, has just gotten his license revoked. So that was a really good scene anyway. So, but it's still, it spoiled the, the fact that he was going to get his license revoked. So I don't know. It's weird, but uh, we do post those on the Facebook page if you are interested in seeing them, but there's like four of them each week, a preview an extended preview sneak peek one and sneak peek two. It's crazy. <laughs> yep. Well, what's not crazy though are the ratings and you know, th- there hasn't been any talk or anything written, at least that I've seen, about a season three, and obviously it's still early. But one of the things that is slow to come out, I guess, unless you actually pay to receive the ratings numbers, which of course I don't, but for the season two premiere, we got the live plus same day numbers, which was 
0.7 in the 18 to 49. But then in the live plus three days, it went up to 1.1, which was a 49% increase for that week. And, and as it turns out, it was the sixth largest increase in the 18 to 49 demographic, and it was the largest increase for that Wednesday night. And then in addition, they had the fifth largest increase in total viewership going from 5.27 million to nearly 7 million, which was the second most viewers for that night. So I think you have to be happy. That's a substantial jump. Yeah. I think it's also a testament to how people are watching television these days, too, though. Well, especially sci-fi. Yeah. So people really have to start paying attention to the uh, time-shifted stuff. So that's good news. So uh, I think it's only going to get better, Dave, because this episode is going to be a really, really fun one to discuss. So let's go ahead and get into our episode discussion. In our opening scene, I love it when they put the overlay, in this case, five months earlier, we're in the county morgue where generally good things don't happen very often. <laughs> and we've got these two workers discussing music and they're into, yeah, I don't know, some kind Vinyl. of- Vinyl. Yeah, but, but, but also the nature of the music it seems to be really depressing. And yeah. suddenly- the body on the table, which is, of course, Molly's son, the offspring, starts twitching. And then all of a sudden, like an insect, starts to shed his outer skin, sits up fully awake, and he's got a new body and a new face. And I love the comment, oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, they just sit there and stare. Like, I guess that's the reaction of a mortician. They're not very uh, emotive, I guess you could say. Right. But it answers that question for us, uh, number one, whether or not he was really dead. But number two, now we get an idea about how the you know regeneration, to use a Doctor Who term, actually works. Yeah, because, of course, in season one, Katie Sparks was a fully grown woman as an offspring of sorts of the actual Katie Sparks. But she had time to do that molting process, presumably, on the Aruna. So we didn't get to see it. Now here we get to see how they are able to grow. And he probably did it more than once. Because this first scene, he's a teenager-looking guy, and then either he molts again or that protein powder that he picks up really does the job. I'm not sure which. Yeah, and the uh, electrolytes that he drinks. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we see him walking out of the morgue, counting the money in the guy's wallet, the, the one guy just sitting there naked, whimpering on the floor. <laughs> but then as he's walking down the street among, it looked to me like homeless people, he lies down, and I guess, is he just exhausted from the process? That possibly could be it, or at least he hasn't established what he's going to do yet because, of course, he has to hatch a scheme and comes up with a pretty good one, actually. <laughs> he rents this really nice penthouse apartment, it looks like, with a great view and kind of dupes the real estate agent into thinking he's a reputable citizen named Mrs. Nelson. Yeah, I, I was a little confused by that, and you cleared it up for me, that he's just using his powers of suggestion. Certainly, we've seen that in the past. Yeah, and I guess it may have taken him a little while to learn that strategy, because remember how we talked about last season, how Katie seemed much more with it, was able to actually have social interactions with uh, whoever Enver Jokai's character was. She did a really good job being more human, and I think that's a process that they have to learn, which is why he turns on the TV and the radios and everything else 
So obviously it may have taken him a while to get that apartment uh, to stock up with junk food and and other things. <laughs> yeah, and that scene was really interesting because he's got, you know, three, four, five radios, television on, and we assume he's just trying to process it all and learn as much as he can. Clearly he's either molted again or the food has had its effect on him and he's bulked up and is now the full-grown offspring played by Henderson Wade. 30 years old, apparently, or at least thereabouts, according to J.D., Right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, like you said, now we're in the present day. Molly's in the bar and her son comes up to her and asks if this seat's taken. And of course, the dramatic irony, we know who he is and she doesn't at first. Now, my question about this scene is obviously there's a lot of question as to how this can't be a coincidence. I think Toby says there's no such thing as coincidence in this line of work. So did the offspring plan this meeting himself and track her down or... Did he happen upon her because he was doing his regular prowling in the bars? Because this does seem like an awful big coincidence. Yeah, I think they're somehow connected. And I don't know whether this itching on her arm is some sort of like spidey sense that Mm -hmm. when the two of them are in close proximity, you know, she gets. But I'm with Toby. I don't think it was a coincidence. I think he tracked her down. And I guess he was ready for her to join them or... Perhaps the whatever change is going on inside her body makes her more detectable to him. Maybe that's it. Right, right. And leaving last week's cliffhanger where Toby gave the launch signal, now we find out that there are 90 seconds to impact and we're clearly wondering what's going to happen. But we also know, okay, they got 90 seconds to get out of the building. And it's strange, too, because he actually asks her to go somewhere else and she's very much amenable to the idea of having a one night stand with this guy who <laughs> she doesn't realize is her son, which makes it kind of creepy. But I mean, gosh, I guess Molly's kind of saying to herself, yeah, I still got it. I can pick up the 30 year olds. Yep. Who tells her his name is Adu. Right. We assume he gave himself that name. Yeah. And we'll hear from Taltos later on as to what the origins of that name are. And then he says, it's good to see you which then prompts her to say, have we met before? And I love his line. It's a small universe. Yeah, this is very strange because he seems to know that the missile is on its way because otherwise, why would he have disabled the camera as though he knew Toby and the military types were watching him? Right, and that's what I wonder. Does he think that will stop the launch? Well, it certainly will prevent them from finding out that they left and calling off the drone strike so that maybe he can make his escape. It was weird because he didn't really get a lot of time to say to Molly what he ended up saying later because after the explosion, he's gone. It's just uh, Molly and JD after that. Right, and at this point, you know, I guess they have no eyes in the bar, so I don't know whether they can redirect a drone once it's been launched or not, but clearly they can't in this case because they don't know that the target's out of the bar. I think Toby was concerned that he no longer had eyes on the target, but they went ahead with the strike anyway, which seems kind of irresponsible. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of aftermath other than bad feelings. (laughs) Well, you do realize what's at risk here, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Aliens, Mike. That's right. (laughs) But the general public doesn't know that. Right, exactly. So, you know, Molly and the offspring cross the parking lot and, and it looks like they're about to kiss Ooh, gross <laughs> when jd appears with a gun which he holds on the offspring but we know that's not going to end well 
Yeah, guns pointed at the offspring. <laughs> Generally end up being pointed at somebody else. Exactly. And so, you know, J.D. suddenly goes rigid. We know the offspring's manipulating him, puts the gun to his temple. And at this point, you know, Molly is the stereotypical mom <laughs> demanding that he not hurt J.D. Yeah, I think she says right now in that very motherly tone. And like a child listening to his mother, he complies. At the same time, the missile hits the building in the background. It's very subtle. I like how they did this because, of course, Toby mentions it later. Now we know that he'll listen to you. And it wasn't really overstated, but she did tell him to stop and he stopped. Right. And it was a great scene to go into commercial. And we come back and it's this chaotic aftermath of the explosion. I don't think we ever find out how many people died, did we? I think last week they said there were like 60 something people in there. So I'm guessing around that. Okay. The target's gone. Molly and JD are taken by one of Toby's assault teams. And not before, though, that she tells JD that the target's her son, which obviously stuns him. Doesn't get a chance to follow up on it until later, though. <laughs> uh, no, he doesn't. Well, that's funny because they got separated here when they got taken back to HQ. And Shana's got JD in her interrogation room. And Molly's being interrogated by some flunky. So it's an interesting dynamic that they have in the two interrogation rooms. Right. And it's just really interesting the way this whole A story is developing around Toby and his team trying to bring the target down. And certainly for him, it's eliminate, not capture. And Molly really just almost discovering these things as they happen. And certainly she's going to vote to disable, not eliminate. Yeah, well, at first I think she's on board with it. I don't think she realizes that she can't do it until later on. But right. she does have a lot of leverage because Toby realizes that aside from the Humanics project, which you know still hasn't come to full fruition for him yet, Molly is his only ability to get close to the target. So Right, and, and, and certainly we have heard her doubts about whether or not when push comes to shove, she'll be able to pull the trigger. And of course there, she even has doubts at the end, but then, you know, she does pull the trigger and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I love the custody sequences where first Shana questions JD about the man in the bar, of course, referring to Molly's son. And I love his repeated response. Just a cop on a case. Yeah. Why are you bugging me lady? It's a good argument. He actually had nothing to do with it. They think it's coincidental that Molly was there, but perhaps they think it's even more coincidental that he showed up because they don't know about the little tracker that he put on her arm. Right. Now, I don't get the point of her spraying him. If she wants to get information out of him, why do you want to put him to sleep? Yeah, well, it's supposed to mimic sleep deprivation, which I guess makes them more amenable to questioning because they're they're suffering. <laughs> It's kind of like a enhanced interrogation technique. But he, like you said, he brings up the point that, well, now I can't even talk because I'm too tired. Right. And she brings up his dishonorable discharge after only two months in the second Kuwait war. And, you know, I wonder, does that have some importance here? Well, I think it does because he recognized the sound of the drone. She did not. She's like, what's that sound? So he knew to sort of shelter them because of his time in the war. But also, apparently, he's got some 
problems with authority and problems with the war in general. And so was insubordinate. I also heard mention of friendly fire. And I think there were some parallels to perhaps his experience in the second Kuwait war, because here there's some friendly fire with this drone strike on the bar. So I think he having some military experience is quite relevant several times here. So I guess we're to understand the first Kuwait war was 1991. I would think so. Yeah. Desert Shield and all that. Right. And and I guess it also causes me to ask about his feeling that he was involved in an unjust war. Now, maybe at this point there is a military draft, but right now and certainly during the first Kuwait war, it was a volunteer army. So, yeah, that's true. It could be some different circumstances of him being sent overseas. So. Uh, they did mention the Second Kuwait War last season as well. So, uh, again, this is one of those nice subtle touches of the future history that they just drop in there very skillfully. And I, I like how they do that. Right. Now, Molly is likewise being questioned and she starts talking about fruit. And I'm wondering where this is all going. And and then suddenly she takes a bite out of the apple. And, you know, I'm the one that's looking for symbolism everywhere. <laughs> yeah. She just is thinking that they're trying to make her think of better times. And she's wondering what the purpose of the fruit bowl there is strategically. Right. And, and, you know, we've had this whole crazy persona that she's been putting out there for the last couple episodes. And she's almost starting to go there here until she goes on her rant about the cowards coming from behind the window. And that's really pretty pivotal in this episode. The fact that Toby does give her what she wants, clears the room, and tells her the truth. Yeah, and I don't think that would have worked with anyone other than Toby. So I think Molly was, in a sense, barking up the wrong tree by just saying, you know, you're cowards and come back here and tell me why you just blew up a building full of civilians. But because it is her friend, he decides to play it straight with her. And Shayna, of course, has her doubts about Toby going into the interrogation room, but we're not sure whether it's to do with her relationship with him or whether she really does believe nothing good will come of it. I think it's nice that they have that dynamic for her so that you're always questioning whether or not she's being professional or not. It's kind of good. Right. And, and I love it when Toby tells the AI to put the room in privacy mode, sends out the guards, and she tells him, if I were you, I wouldn't be alone with me right now. Oh, yeah. She immediately has the reaction of, this was you the whole time? And she blames him for putting her in the menstrual institution too, which he insists he had nothing to do with. So this is interesting because I think Molly is equally angry about being at Restwell as she is about the drone strike. And yeah, I'm inclined to believe Toby that he had nothing to do with her institutionalization, but then did she do it to herself or were there outside influences? Because we don't know that. Well, right. But I think what we do know is, as you said, I definitely believe him as well. And I think what comes out of this scene is that he really is a man of honor and that he really does feel that he's doing the right thing by trying to eliminate this offspring. And, and of course, when he shows her the projection maps, it's difficult to argue with his decision. But he thinks she arranged the meeting at the bar, which we talked about before. And, and of course, she denies it. And, and I obviously we believe her. Yeah. And I think also part of this discussion he has with her points to him leaving her out of it up until now because of her erratic behavior and because of those abnormal brain scans and her being put in rest well. So he was trying to keep her out of it because it wasn't until 
after the the modified testimony or something like that with the Senate hearing that he found out that the boy was not dead after all. And so I guess he just kind of cut her out of the loop. And now that she's involved again and he, he sees she can be useful, he's going to be up front with her. Right. And of course, she tells him, you know, if you want my help, if I really am going to be an asset, you need to tell me everything. And he just starts telling her everything. And we find out that there are 29 known deaths in the U.S. in the last six months, seemingly clustered on the West Coast. All the women died of accelerated births and their pregnancies were traced back to the target, her son. Yeah. And this is kind of surprising. Number one from the number 29 is more than we thought or that J.D. thought anyway. Uh, because his case only included, I think, three similar deaths, something like that. And the other thing is they're tracking just the one target and they seem to be disregarding the other offspring that are coming out, perhaps because they're still young and they're not procreating yet. But at the same time, those 29 births are also dangerous. Well, but I guess I looked at the projections he showed her after six weeks and then after six months, which were quite significant. I, I assumed it was sort of like the whole pandemic type projection that that regardless, though, you, you know, each of these males goes out and, you know, so, so we assume that's why the pandemic gets as huge as it does after only six months. Right. I, I do think that they are their projections aren't taking into account the additional offspring, but it's just that their current strategy seems to only be going after the first target, the first offspring. Right. Which I guess is a good first step. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and he pleads with her for her help because he knows she's really the only option he has. I mean, again, outside of another drone strike or a lucky sniper shot, I suppose. But then even there, uh, what's the sniper shot going to do? I think what we have at this point is Molly gets involved just in time because the humanics are going to start coming into play. And she's already got her foot in the door because otherwise I don't think they would have played ball with her if the humanics were up and ready right now Shayna questions toby's decision to bring molly on board and then we cut to that high-tech very very cool shooting range where Shayna's teaching molly how to shoot and i guess my first reaction was okay i know she's an astronaut but i assume she has a military background so that can't have been the first time she shot a gun well apparently not because yeah, what, other, right. what other explanation do we have that she has 100 percent accuracy is that part of her alien DNA as well? <laughs> nah, I think it's her Air Force training. It must be. That was pretty impressive. And she's like, when I set my sights on a target, I nail it. And I think she's speaking literally and metaphorically. <laughs> right. And, and the same thing there when she tells her, just make sure you've got your eyes on the target. And obviously referring to her son as well. That's right. So Shana has her concerns and, and I think General Shepard is... Also, making sure that she is prepared to do what needs to be done. Because when you think about it, it is a little crazy to give someone who has just been released from a mental institution a gun and tell, tell her to, if, if the target gets close, take your shot. Well, that's true. Now, one scene that I'm not sure exactly what to make of is the one with Shepard talking to JD, telling him he's about to be released. And if he goes about his life quietly enough, there'll be no further issues. Does he really think that he's just going to go away? Well, I don't know, because like I said, I think if JD didn't have that military experience and he talks about how he doesn't like to be bullied, I don't like uh, the bullies that I dealt with in the second K and I don't like being bullied now. 
So I think he's not willing to give up on it because of the way that General Shepard is being dismissive of him. But I feel like if he hadn't made such a stink, he might have been able to keep his license. And, and I agree with that. But I also just look at him as this character who is just dogged in his pursuit of a story. And that, you know, once I'm onto the story, you just telling me to let it go is not going to be enough. Look, I mean, at one point we think that, and certainly understandably that, well, maybe it's just the fact that this is Halle Berry and, <laughs> you know, that that uh, he's a good looking guy. He's single, you, you know, all of that. But I just think it's so much more than that. And I just think Shepard's a little naive to think that J.D. is going to let it go. But then on the other hand, maybe he just figures he won't let it go and we'll take him out because he's not an alien. He will die. <laughs> That's true. But I also think that taking away his license actually made that possibility even more remote now he's really gonna go after it because he wants his license back and and the people who took it away from him are involved in this so he's gonna keep at it and of course we find out that's the case when he goes over to molly's right and i I love seeing her back in uniform and, and i think that was pretty significant as well toby goes over her instructions which are basically just go home and wait for your son to contact you which is of course what makes the most sense Tells her that he made rest well and that experience go away. JD's off the case. And this is when he brings up the real question we've all been wondering. When the time comes, can you pull the trigger? Yeah. And she says, we'll find out, won't we? And I think she thinks she can at this point. Uh, It's not until later that she realizes that her, her feelings are wrapped up in it too much. But I think she wants to be the assassin that Toby has recruited her to be. All right. Well, Molly's at home in bed. Here's the door open, grabs her gun. And this goes back to what you said about giving a insane person a gun. <laughs> Finds JD in her living room chair. What's up, Doc? <laughs> now, what's with all the rabbit imagery? You know, I, Bugs I'm Bunny. Think, well, the Bugs Bunny, the Velveteen Rabbit, which comes into play in, in the other storyline. The fact that, that Jules has always called him Rabbit. So is this like an inference about how quickly the aliens will spread? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The offspring is procreating like a rabbit would do. That's true. Okay, but why is she holding a gun on him? Yeah, I mean, she has to know he's on her side. He's not there to hurt her. Yeah, well, I think it's just an initial reaction because she is obviously prepared for the offspring to show up and not him. But she's also wondering why he's there when he's been taken off the case, because she does become more sympathetic towards him rather quickly and puts the gun down. But yeah, it's an interesting reaction that she starts off with. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how viewers perceive some of the lines, because I can see some of JD's lines rubbing people the wrong way. I think they're awesome. You know, I love them. He tells her about having his license revoked. She apologizes. Sorry, doesn't keep me in beer and cowboy boots. (laughs) Who can not like that line? I I know. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. He's got a a bunch of great ones. And this whole scene is so well-written the way that JD talks about how, you know, you want to talk flying monkeys. I'm ready to listen. (laughs) Right. And you know, we know he was getting close even before. Yeah. But now, again, he's seen and heard too much. Now, she tells J.D. the truth about her son and that he's the perp in this case. He believes her, says he needs a drink. And then she starts getting that arm itch, tells him he's got to go. 
I still think it's that connection with her son that, that she knows her son is near and wants, look, her son already had him put a gun to his own head. Yeah, and I think the reason that she pulls out the gun and fires is really just to get rid of him so that he'll take her seriously. Not that it's actually the offspring controlling her actions, as he would with someone else. Right, but we do know his actions have something to do with the power outage, which turns out to be a 20-square-block outage with Molly's apartment as the center point. What is he doing there? Why does it need to be no power? I don't know. Cameras? Does he figure any electronic surveillance? Uh, look, he already knows they sent a drone after him. So I kind of felt like it was the same as season one when Odin's group kept taking out the power. That was their terrorist acts really had a lot to do with taking the power grid out because they were anti-tech. But so the fact that a blackout comes into play again in this season brings those thoughts up. But here, I don't know what the strategy is. But anyway, it's it was kind of creepy. And it also served the purpose of sending Toby in Molly's direction. Right. And in this final scene with Molly and her son, I mean, we certainly get some answers, by no means all, but she calls Toby and tells him that she doesn't know if she can pull the trigger. It's my son. Yeah. And this is what I always wonder about. Molly vacillates because all along we're kind of treating this alien like it's a parasite that puts a baby in the uh, host, <laughs> kind of like a larva, and they're unwilling. They're they're not willing hosts. And so to say it's my son, it bothered me in season one, and it bothers me here still. Yeah, I agree. Well, her son appears at the door. Hello, mother. And then that whole thing about, is that what you want? To kill me? Or I can tell you why I'm here. Your choice. Yeah, he, he's almost inviting her to shoot. And I wonder if perhaps her shooting would have no effect, but I think it's either that or he knows that she's not going to do it. Well, I'm assuming he'd do the whole thing, put up his hand and stop the bullet, kind of, <laughs> you know, the bullet there uh, suspended in midair. But but he says, killing people isn't the nature of my mission. What? <laughs> then how do you explain all the dead pregnant ladies there, buddy? Well, and I guess it's it's semantics that that's just a byproduct of my mission. Yeah. So do you want to believe well of this mission? He talks about how, oh, it's going to be so much more. I have so much to show you, mother. Uh, Do you think it has the possibility of being something that might be beyond human comprehension and for the good of all kind of thing or the next step type stuff? Well, well, I do, and I think we've seen this coming for a few episodes now, that this whole, as he explains to her, behold, a vision of our destiny, mother, and that whole idea of the next evolutionary step for mankind, and, and certainly it's interesting that, you know, I guess in December or January, we've got Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End right. miniseries coming up, which, uh, of course, examines that very idea, and I think we have the same thing here tells her she's going to have to make a choice about which side she's on. Are you going to stay with the human race as it is, or are you going to come over to the new human race? Yeah, and I feel like she has that option as one of the few mothers that survived the birth of their child. So because she had the child extracted, she has a chance to actually join with the hybrids as perhaps a little bit of a hybrid herself. Right. So what about the vision he shows her? Of all the other offspring? Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely is something where they're not really there, because as she faints, they kind of vanish. But he's 
showing her what he's done so far, I think. Right. That's my question, whether or not this is just a vision of what will be or a vision of what's already happened. And I'm just showing you them remotely. I think it's the second one. (laughs) Well, the other fascinating aspect of this whole story is that while all this is going on, while we're talking about the next step in mankind's evolution, we go back to the story of Ethan and Lucy and their continued development. And look, we've talked about dark matter and the Android in that, how <laughs> it's just, it just grates on my nerves. Well, that's going to say, cause you have that extreme of, of Zoe Palmer not doing a great Android. You've got these very human androids in this show, and you've even got AMC's humans, which has another exploration of androids, which I think is really done very well. But I like how the androids here, Ethan and Julie are meant to be very human. Even Lucy with her accelerated development seems very human and makes human decisions and has a certain amount of autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. And and we can make so many comparisons. I mean, we could take this podcast off in a totally different direction. Uh, We saw the same thing in Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons. But here, you know, we're we're at the lab. Charlie challenges Julie after he hears Ethan call her mom, (laughs) tells her she's the one that needs the ethical adapter installed. Yeah, I think Charlie is being the voice of the audience as he usually is. But at the same time, Julie does make some compelling arguments about why she did it. I mean, obviously, we were horrified at what she did as it was the closing scene of last week. But here she's making the arguments about, you know, he was in pain. He was trying to kill himself. I did what I had to do. And it may have been self-serving, but at the same time, it did serve a certain purpose. Which brings up that question that he was going to off himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Well, doesn't that fly in the face of uh, Asimov's laws of robotics? Do they apply here? Oh, or no? no, no, because he actually was able to develop his own sense of ethics naturally, the way they had hoped to be able to do with Lucy. So they don't have control over it. I think John was a big proponent of that. We have to let him make his own choices, good or bad, and this includes suicidal tendencies. Okay. Okay. That's a good name for a band, by the way. I should write that down. (laughs) All right. Well, Anna Schaefer comes in. Let's get this show started. And we see Lucy lying on the table waiting to be activated, which Charlie does. She gets right up on her own. I I love it. Apologizes to Charlie. And then Anna Schaefer asks Lucy if she knows who she is, which of course she does. And, And granted, she explains that this information was implanted in my neural net, but still. Right. I think Anna is very impressed all around with everything that Lucy does. And obviously they've done some tweaks after her incident breaking Charlie's fingers. But even the first interaction she has with Ethan and introducing each other, of course, they already know each other, just not in this particular body. Right. And I think a lot of it is just the natural uh, reactions that she has and the way everything just seems to flow just so smoothly, just like a human. Well, yeah, and you're right. It's very subtle because all of the misgivings that we're going to have about Lucy in this episode are understated to a great degree. They aren't in your face. This is a major problem. It's kind of like things that just sort of niggle at the back of your brain where something's not quite right and you know it's going to become much worse. And the first indication is when she asks if she can see herself. Oh, you think so? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of you know, who am I? What's my place? Where do I fit in? You know, that whole sense of self. 
that humans have. Do machines have that? Yeah. Well, apparently they do here. Well, you get the sense later that she does have a sort of sense of vanity. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's true. And, of course, Anna's ready for a field test. She wants it right now. And Julie's trying to buy some time. You know, well, we still got to run through the protocol. She wasn't able to learn by experience the way Ethan did. You know, we hear about the empathic response algorithm, the ethical adapter, da, 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 which is what Anna Schaefer is hearing. <laughs> yeah, she's hearing. Why do we keep bringing this up? All this stuff about humans making moral decisions. You do know what we're fighting here, right? And that's something that really bothers me that she and Charlie don't seem to get that. Or is it that they don't know? Wait, you're saying that Anna is right to be feeling that way about... Absolutely. See, I don't agree. I think that it is true what Charlie says, that it's not a shoot or don't shoot scenario. Because you're going to have the problems that come with human casualties and, and the fallout from the decisions you make. And even though you've got to make those tough choices, as, as Anna argues, I think the, the great analogy that Charlie makes is to the Cuban Missile Crisis. If Lucy had been in charge, the bombs would have flown. There would have been no examining of the consequences. That's right. And then we wouldn't have had the nuclear buildup in the 70s. <laughs> wow, Dave. Okay, so we're on opposite ends of the Anna versus Charlie spectrum, I think. Good, good thing my finger's not on the button. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Julie tells her that Lucy can detect a hybrid because of the 84 degrees resting body temperature. How do they a, know that? <laughs> yeah, good question. But yeah, interesting detail. But since she's a humanic, the offspring can't detect her. Theoretically, I think that's probably a leap. Yeah, this is going to be interesting to see uh, the the relationship between the robots and the aliens and the advantages and disadvantages that each one has. Right. And that's what this is all setting up, that that matchup to see who's more powerful, I guess. Who's going to come out on top, right? But I'm glad we got this out of the way that Anna is specifically talking about the alien menace, because up until this episode, we didn't know. We were just guessing and theorizing that Anna was pushing Julie to the limits because of the alien menace. But nowhere did they mention that that's why they were doing it. And here we find out that that's what it's been about all along, and Anna starts to make a lot more sense. Right, exactly. All right, well, Julie, a.k.a. Mom, <laughs> is reading The Velveteen Rabbit. Again. <laughs> okay, now, you have kids, so you've probably read this. I had to actually oh, look yeah. it up. I yeah. had to look it up online, so I'm sure most of the listeners know what the story is. The stuffed rabbit in his quest to become real through the love of his owner, and, and obviously that has been a huge part of Ethan in the first two seasons. Right. And I think we brought this up in our season one podcast. I talked a little bit about the plot line of Velveteen Rabbit, but the key part that she's reading at this point is talking about how the skin horse says, you know, when you're real, you don't mind being hurt because of course, Ethan did just get hurt and Julie took the hurt away. So she's kind of delivering an ironic statement about how real people shouldn't worry about being hurt. That's part of the human experience. And she's taken that away from him by changing his memories. Right now, the other thing that's got to, I would certainly think, bother Julie at this point is when he tells her that he knows Lucy was built to be a soldier, number one, and then number two, he asks that question that probably horrifies and is, is like that, that question that uh, is probably worse than the sex question for parents. Why am I here? Right? In his case, what was I built for? 
Well, I think she does a good job. She says, you're here to be you. That's the same thing John would have said, I think, in her place. Yeah, but it's such a nothing answer. I mean, I get it. You know, with a human parent to a human child, it probably makes sense on a lot of levels. But he's not an ordinary child. And I'm wondering, how can that possibly be sufficient for his question? Well, maybe it won't be. Maybe Ethan will serve a greater purpose in the season at large. I actually very much hope that. Right. Now, uh, of course, she tells him lovingly. Yeah. And she, I think she really does love him, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. And then his eyes seem to have locked. Yeah. Which she notices. And then we get his perspective and he sees Molly, then Julie, before snapping out of it. And then he's just like, yeah, mom, I'm fine. He does a great job, Pierce Canyon does, of doing that dead stare. <laughs> I mean, that was like your computer freezing up and then restarting. And he does it again later with Charlie. So I think he really did a good job of imitating the human form of the spinning beach ball. Yeah. <laughs> now, the next scene, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree going into it, uh, where Julie's putting Lucy through the series of ethical situations the first few of which are are relatively straightforward and easy. But when she gets to the one that requires the death of one to save the many, Lucy pauses, and I was a little surprised she kind of laughed there for a second. Because the scenario was ridiculous. It had a pregnant woman wedged in the mouth of a cave, and I actually was admiring that Lucy saw the humor in that unrealistic scenario of, you know, they have to use dynamite to get the pregnant lady out of the mouth of the cave. I, I preferred Anna's example much more, even though it was a lot more harsh. Exactly. And it was a lot more likely to occur somewhere down the road when she talks about the terrorist hiding in a school. Do you blow up the school? And Lucy, of course, agrees right away. Yes, you do. Yeah. And Anna argues, OK, great. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. She made the tough call quickly. She doesn't have the human fallibility. But of course, Charlie is horrified that she would blow up a school to take out a terrorist without weighing in any other options. And that's where I think that Charlie is correct. Even though Anna has a point, you have to be able to make quick decisions and not waffle because of emotional issues tied into it. But you also have to weigh options that might be better. Right now, the thing that struck me here is whether or not Lucy gave Anna the answer she sensed Anna wanted. Yeah, possibly. Or is that what she really thinks? And and now we're talking about a sentient being that's already making ethical choices and decisions. Yeah, and I think that's implied in this episode that Lucy does have that ability. In fact, I think it's telling that Julie starts that hypothetical scenario discussion by saying, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what you really think. Right. And then, of course, Anna tells julie that we're going to put on a bot and pony show (laughs) buy lucy a nice dress and then uh, we cut to julie's apartment and she shows her a red dress and a blue dress she's already wearing a white dress i mean really red white and blue well no (laughs) she's wearing the white jumpsuit that's yeah that's not for a formal occasion right but i'm just the color red white and blue i'm uh, anyway okay well yeah, it possibly could have been going in that direction, but I actually preferred the blue dress. So I don't know if this white dress was not just inappropriate, as Julie mentions, but also just looked a bit strange and asymmetrical and all that. So 
I don't know why she chose it. Like, what are we supposed to conclude about Lucy having made her own decision rather than picking from the two options that she seemed completely ambivalent about? Well, uh, number one, I like the fact that she asked if she could try them on before making a decision. And then what are we to make of that? Well, I, I think the the fact that she's thinking for herself and that she is not going to be at the beck and call of whatever human thinks is in charge. Yeah, that's what I love about this subtlety, that they're just giving it to us in a non-alarming way, but it just kind of bothers you slightly that she's making her own decisions because in a bigger decision that might require life or death, she might not pick option A or option B. She might make up her own option C. <laughs> well, right. And then do we take anything away from the fact that she chose what I think male and female alike would argue is a pretty sexy dress that she looked great in? Well, because it's not appropriate for the situation. Julie wants it to be professional. And so in another situation, she might also pick something that's not appropriate. All right. But what I'm getting at, Julie's probably got a whole closet full of appropriate wear. In fact, my guess is most Most of of Julie's (laughs) closet is appropriate. But I know. But in the military scenarios, people might think she's going to pick from the logical choices and she might pick something that's not logical. So I think that's what we're supposed to take from it is that Lucy could pick something that's not even appropriate for the situation, not just putting on a dress, but you know, life or death type stuff. Right. Okay. Well, the the park scene with Ethan and Charlie, I guess, is just there so that we can have Ethan glitch again. And, you know, I forgot about that scene with the balloon. Yeah, yeah. That was actually a pretty pivotal scene early on uh, where Ethan ran away from her. And he's starting to remember Molly. And again, it's better this time because this time he doesn't just freeze up. He freezes up and then shuts down and then restarts. Right. And when he wakes, Charlie, who's Molly? And and look, I think anybody that's spent any time managing computers, repairing computers, software troubleshooting, you never really truly erase a hard drive. That's right. That information is still there. I mean, it might take NSA level uh, software to recover it, but it is still there. And I guess that's what's happening here. Yeah, Ethan's got some Molly cookies still in his <laughs> cache. Okay. Is is spherical chess real? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a cool little thing that they're playing. And, and of course, Lucy is wearing the blue dress, as Julie has asked her to do. But Lucy wants to know Ethan's opinion. And I think, again, more and more interesting that Lucy has this vanity aspect to her. But, of course, Ethan doesn't know much about girls' clothes And if she doesn't like it, she can print herself another one anyway on the 3D printer, which apparently can print clothing as well, depending on what material you uh, give it to to work with. So uh, apparently that's something Ethan does all the time. And so does Julie. Yeah. And I love the budding relationship between the brother and sister, you know, the big sister, the little brother. And I think we'll, we'll keep seeing that develop. But down the road, I think this relationship really has some uh, serious ramifications. Well, and again, I think they have a nod to Lucy's autonomy when she says to Ethan, you pick the design for for his T-shirt. And Ethan says, yeah, of course. Meaning, yeah, I make all my decisions, you know, my preferences known all the time and I get to do what I want. And so she's going to take from that that she can do what she wants too. Right. Now, the other relationship that we see, 
I don't even want to use the word develop. I don't know what to use at this point is, <laughs> is with Julie and Charlie. I mean, he tells her he took care of Ethan's glitches, but tells her that Ethan knows something's going on. Now, what's he referring to? The fact that she wiped the memories of Molly away? Exactly. Or is it something else? Okay, just that then. Yeah, he's saying that it, it's going to come out more. I can't get rid of all the glitches and I can't undo what, what you've done. He's going to continue to do that and have glitchy problems and julie says well you know glitches are better than suicidal tendencies so i'll take it she's not too worried about it because it's helped him from feeling pain he's having fun with his sister and that's much more preferable than the rebellious son that she'd been dealing with probably for months but leading up to the ultimatum that she eventually gives him that you know if you're not happy with the direction of the program then you should just leave and and i guess again i'm, I'm amazed that neither of them seems to have been able to foresee the militaristic uses that their project was invariably going to go. Well, it's funny because maybe they were blinded by the whole direction that Yasumoto took it last year, where he almost wanted to plant human consciousness in it as a way to achieve immortality. <laughs> so maybe their minds were in such a different direction based on that. And that's an interesting thing, by the way. Uh, Anna seems to indicate that the military has been footing the bill, but it seems like they're still in the Yasumoto Towers that they were in last year. So I'm not sure how the relationship between Yasumoto Corp and uh, the Global Safety Commission works. But be that as it may, I think that explains why they're not thinking in that direction because of John yeah. and Yasumoto. They're on a long lease, I guess, there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But ironically, what comes out of this scene is he can finally tell her how he's felt about her all the time, because now you're not that person. And apparently she takes that to heart. I think she's probably feeling pretty lonely at the top. And when he says that to her, she, I guess, lets it fester a little bit and, and gets used to the idea and <laughs> plants it on him later. Yeah, I think literally she's, and figuratively. Uh, I think she's a little more cunning, but we'll uh, get to that in a second. Oh, so, really? All right, so we get the bot and pony show, military politicians in attendance. Anna is holding court, comparing robots on the battlefield to self-driving cars. Uh, yeah, and we all heard the Google story today, I assume. Oh, did it, was there an accident? I didn't hear that. Yes, one. there was. Although the Google car was actually hit by somebody else. Well, that's what I say. all the stories about the self-driving cars are human error, and this is great. This is the senator that's funding the project, talking about self-driving cars, and we see self-driving cars in this series all over the place. And when we first introduced it, people were worried, but it's humans that mess things up. And Anna says, same thing here. We're introducing a robot into a battlefield situation where human error is a problem just like that. Compelling argument, a very compelling argument. Yeah. I think it's short-sighted, but it's definitely true. Yep. Well, we're all waiting for the demonstration of Lucy's capabilities, and in she walks, wearing the white dress that <laughs> Julie told her was inappropriate, and she is pissed. Confronts her about the dress. I, I think she even accuses her of stealing it. Yeah, did you take that out? No, no, no. And Lucy seems to be horrified by that idea. No, I printed it. Ethan showed me how. I would never steal something. That's in my uh, little algorithm that Charlie installed that I don't steal from Julie. <laughs> right. And I guess she's upset because, number one, Lucy went against the instruction she was given. But on the other hand, I thought that's what you wanted her is to develop a, a, a mind of her own and make these decisions on her own. But more to the point, I think she just feels like it truly is inappropriate and it'll somehow 
caused the politicians, the military to look down on her program. But of course, just the opposite happens. Anna's thrilled. And Charlie even compliments her dress. I mean, no one really seems to have a problem with it except for Julie. But I think Julie's more bothered by the fact that she went against her wishes rather than the slight inappropriateness of the dress. Right. And Julie, again, hesitates when Anna pushes her for a field test. And Lucy immediately says, I'll go get Charlie. Yeah. Because she wants to be tested. Clearly, she has to know Julie doesn't want the test to go off right now. So so is she deliberately going against what Julie wants? Uh, I don't think so. I think she just is eager to prove herself. She wants to get, quote, all of the answers right. Uh, uh, by the way, is there a moment of flirting with Charlie when she picks up his hand? Or is she just referring to the fact that she didn't get it right when she crunched his hand? See, I think she's flirting. Wow. <laughs> Well, but I think she's flirting with a purpose. Oh, really? I see. On the one hand, I want to say I don't trust her. And I know that sounds like a negative view because it's just the opposite. I love the direction she's taking. I love if that's truly flirting with a purpose. Okay. Yeah, I'd be interested to know what that purpose is, but okay. Right. We don't know yet. But I think it's interesting that she says, I want to get all of the answers right because... It's not a right answer type of test. You know, it's something where she has to demonstrate her viability. Now, I think that Anna has been impressed thus far and will probably be blind to any flaws because she wants it to work. But an interesting way she puts that, I want to get all the answers right in this field test. Yeah. And in the final scene of this storyline... Apparently, Julie has called Charlie over to put Ethan to bed, but uh, it turns out that she probably called him over to put the two of them to bed. Um, (laughs) And even though they both admit they said things they didn't mean, I'm thinking, what's the deal here? And look, we know he really liked her. We never saw her reciprocate. You know, we always felt like she had that thing for John. And obviously that came out, you know, in the open in this season. Well, I think what's going on here is she's lonely at the top. And she's finally getting some sense that Charlie has deeper feelings for her that transcend his disappointment and all this. And she is feeling like she needs to be loved. And I think she's taking the opportunity to take advantage of his feelings for her. See, and I guess I see the nefarious in everything because I think it's just a ploy to get him on her side in the power struggle with Anna. Well, you could be right. (laughs) I think it could go either way. (laughs) Um, But then we get to the closing scene. And, you know, the closing scenes in this night's episode were really brief but really telling jd arrives at his home at night to find as it turns out his daughter kelsey waiting on the steps she's pregnant so what's the first thought that comes to your mind that the offspring impregnated her (laughs) there you go now is that going to be too obvious well no i i think that although jd has bought into it because molly has told him the full story she sent him away by shooting a bullet at her. And he says, well, it's been nice knowing you. And now this is going to re-engage him even further. The fact that his daughter is intimately involved with, with all this. And then Molly wakes to find all the offspring gone. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're left to ask whether or not the visions were real. And of course, we assume they were not. She shoots Adu. And she thinks. <laughs> Sorry, I'm with them. But as it turns out, it's not Adu that she shoots, it's Toby. And that's what we're left with. Yeah, and I think uh, some feedback uh, people that we're going to talk to in a minute here (laughs) 
<laughs> are mentioning how kind of a crazy situation that is that she shot and also that Toby would be so short-sighted as to walk into that situation without realizing that he was he could easily be mistaken for uh, Molly's target but be that as it may we've got two really great cliffhangers to end the episode with right and presented with a lot of questions uh, right off the bat is General Shepard dead no I hope not and will Molly be charged in the shooting and and let's assume he's not dead he of course will vouch for her that you know like you said I was probably stupid walking in there when I sent her there with a gun and and all of that how much do we trust Shana and I think the trust surrounding her is probably more important if Toby's alive than if he's dead yeah I think she is going to sour on this whole situation very quickly even more than she already is Okay. Now, now we touched on it. Once these offspring are born, won't the male simply go out and impregnate women, thereby significantly increasing the number of targets that the military must eliminate? Yeah. I mentioned that earlier that why are they only focusing on one target? Maybe it's just because that's all they can do right now, but they definitely have more targets than just the one. Yeah. And maybe they're just not really seeing the big picture for what it really is. Now, will lucy and ethan team to escape the lab hmm. and if so to what end i mean i think she already feels restricted there i don't think so i think she's wanting to go with anna and do the soldier thing so what would they be escaping from well well let me let me then rephrase escape julie's lab well i don't think they will need to escape julie's lab because anna will take possession okay all right. But that doesn't take into account Ethan. So you think Ethan's going to try to escape too and join the fight? <laughs> I think the two of them are, are going to team up somehow. I mean, I, I really do think that brother-sister bond is just going to keep getting stronger. And, and look, hmm. he's little, but intellectually he's... He might be superior to Lucy in that. Well, in that we don't know because he's had that experience. Or is Molly going to try to come in and rescue him? And by extension, Lucy. Yeah, she's been focused on the offspring and JD's case, but now that she's out, you would think one of her first things that she would want to do is find out what's up with Ethan because she really hasn't brought that up so far. I just now thought of that, actually. What 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 does she think of the fact that Ethan is nowhere around? Does she know he's with Julie? I don't know. Yeah, um, and, and then that whole idea of whether it's logical for an AI to question its own purpose. Uh, well, in this case, I think it is. The humanics are very unique among androids where they're supposed to have those human reactions to things. So, yeah, I think that's probably part of their programming, which could be both good and also dangerous. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, let's have a listen to what some of the listeners have to say in our feedback segment. And we'll start again with Leo who wrote to us again this week and says, this week, let me focus on the government's, quote, brilliant ideas. <laughs> Leo does like to poke fun. So let's get this into the nitpicking category that we like to do on the Continuum podcast, where it's all in good fun, right, Dave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Anna. 
Why can't she just come out and say, Julie, I need you to make me a lifelike robot that can spot, sneak up to, and kill these alien invaders, as well as impress at cocktail parties? If that's the true mission of this generation of Humanic, why does it need morality at all? Uh, apparently, Leo agrees with you, Dave. <laughs> build the Terminator now, save humanity. There you then go. Then build that, that, Mr. That, that, whoa, stop. We don't need any more. <laughs> build the Terminator, save humanity. That's it. Because <laughs> he says, then maybe you can come back and build Mr. Data from Star Trek that has more uh, desire to become human. So, yeah, good point. And speaking of morality, why are they so concerned with it? I seem to remember that the AI on the Seraphim couldn't do some things because the actions could harm humans. Sounds to me like there is already some basic moral programming available for AI. Do the humanics really need to understand the intricacies of deontological and teleological ethics? Humans haven't mastered morality. Toby and his goons. If Toby is in charge of stopping the invasion, we are toast. We learn that JD is a hardcore cop that will do anything to solve his case. He used a fake court order to get Molly out. Yeah, that's right. They brought that up, that JD's uh, court order was fake. That was kind of a surprise. Yeah. But I guess that's in the vein of, of JD's personality. We learn he has a problem with authority. So what does Toby do after capturing him? Gives him the age-old BS line, your case is closed, just walk away, nothing to see here, and then revokes his cop license. Yeah, JD will just go away and not be a problem now, <laughs> especially since his daughter is totally alien pregnant. Okay, first let's institutionalize Molly, but keep an eye on her when she breaks out, then let's almost kill her in the drone strike, and now that she's good and mad, let's recruit her and give her a gun, and then let her go home unsupervised. <laughs> just what we were saying, Dave. Uh, Molly has to call Toby a la 911 when her son, the alien, shows up. Here's a thought, Toby. If you can hack the cameras in a bar, why not put a few in Special Deputy Alien Bates' house and station a SWAT team down the street? You know, just in case. Honorable mention to Julie this week. How did she think everyone would react the first time Ethan called her mom in the office? Jeez. So some great humor in that. Leo, thank you very much for the good laugh. All right, well, we heard from Taltos again, who says, I wonder if Lucy's clothing rebellion was less about thwarting Julie and more about looking good for Charlie. <laughs> Could the show be setting up Lucy and Julie as rivals for Charlie's affections? I can't imagine going up against a jealous humanic will go well for Julie. <laughs> uh, Mickey Fisher tweeted, to kick off, Adu, born from Adadua from a Yoruba creation myth, in some African myths, Oduduwa was the son of a sky god tasked with creating the earth. Others say he was a mortal king from the east who conquered the indigenous people of Yorubaland in the 11th century. Oduduwa became the first king of the Yoruba with his sons and grandsons later sent off to create their own Yoruba kingdoms. Is this what Adu's statement of killing people isn't the nature of my mission means? He's not there to kill per se, but rather to create hybrid progeny and take over the earth. The deaths of the pregnant mothers just being an unfortunate consequence of his creation process. Hey, I, I like that theory that Taltus brings up since this is a creation myth. But at the same time, the fact that we used Odin, a god's name, in the first season, and now we're using Adu, another. Is she saying that because Adu is son of Oduduwa, does that mean that Adu is a god's name? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. But yeah, I do know that they like to play around with that stuff. And if Mickey Fisher tweeted it, then it must be true. <laughs> well, next we heard from Slacker Inc. Now, Slacker Inc.'s email comes from 
uh, a little while ago, but it's actually still quite relevant today because it's very generic in terms of the, the show at large and also about the podcast and how people are watching Extant. So he says, it was awesome to hear another Extant podcast episode from you guys after really enjoying the ones you did last season. I honestly never thought I'd have the pleasure again, as I had assumed due to last season's low ratings that the show was canceled. Apparently, per Google, it was renewed way back in October, but that news just didn't make enough of a splash in the pop culture zeitgeist to catch my attention. I actually kind of wonder if there are others like me out there, except they still don't know that the show's back. I only learned about it myself because Monday night I pulled up Amazon Prime on my Roku, something I don't do that often as I mostly stick with Netflix, Hulu, and HBO now, and I happened to notice a little blurb for the show. And even then, it didn't clearly say season two, but I just selected it to give it a rating in case I never did last year and was shocked to see a new episode on there. After watching the episode, I was eager to see if you guys were back at it, found that you were, and listened to the podcast with great enjoyment. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, But as I say, the lack of feedback may well be because many others had just written the show off for dead. Uh, That's actually good thinking, Alan, but it's apparently because of a glitch in the feedback form, as I mentioned, but good thought. Anyway, all that meta aside, my thoughts on the episode itself paralleled yours. Given that they got new showrunners and did a lot of retconning, they're even saying reboot in interviews, looking to go pulpier, sexier, with more action and less science, the result on screen was surprisingly good. I really like the privatized cop and the whole concept of how he worked, sort of Uber style. And though I liked John, his loss is not a deal breaker. Yeah, but you know, just that whole idea about the show becoming sexier... I mean, kind of, but I think our fears were unfounded. I mean, is the scene at the end of this episode with Julie and Charlie, is that considered sexier, even though they don't really show us anything? Yeah, I think that was a little bit of false advertising. (laughs) I mean, they have been using sex with Molly's anonymous sex that she's been having and just sexier scenes with JD. But other than that, it hasn't been forefront and we like it that way we like it in the background right and and as to a lack of science i guess i would argue that it's it's a lot of the ethical a lot of the social science as well which is much more interesting anyway absolutely slacker inc does have one main retcon complaint though it too is not a complete deal breaker i buy that julie and john were having an affair i buy her jealousy and all that but I don't buy that she suddenly turned into the kind of person who would so willingly subsume the humanics program into the military industrial complex. She seemed really to be pretty much the opposite of that in the first season. And yeah, that that's true. Slacker Inc. It is a major change for Julie, but I think it's for the better. Her character is much more interesting. Well, I don't think she has much choice in the matter. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she's, she's not John and it would have happened with her without her. Exactly. So, All right. Well, lastly, we heard from Barb, who says, listen to the podcast last year, but never got around to sending in feedback. I thought Extant was okay last year, but I wasn't going to watch this summer. And I'm glad I changed my mind. The first two episodes have been stellar, pun intended. (laughs) I like how the writers are basically telling us that Molly's behavior changes are a result of the alien DNA now in her blood and should present an interesting dynamic for the rest of the season. No, it's not radioactive moonbeams, and Molly should be smart enough to face that. (laughs) I don't think that it's only her son spreading the alien DNA. She's doing it now as well. Ah. And I wonder if her friend Toby knows she's a risk to the population, and that's the real reason she's been locked up at the funny farm. I I mean, again, we, we talked about whether or not Toby knew 
that she was locked up there. He says no, and I think we both said we believe him. And again, Barb's email is from a couple episodes ago, so she didn't know that Toby made that argument in this week's episode. But still, it, it is something where you have to wonder, what did Toby know and when right. with regard to her incarceration? Right. Uh, she goes on to say that's probably why he ordered the drone strike to happen, even though she was there with her alien son. Now, love the fast pace and the chemistry between Molly and J.D., Thought the writers were going to try and make Julie a quasi-sympathetic character last week, but then she erased Ethan's memories and made herself his mom, so she stays on the evil list. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Julie. Yep. And I'll be looking forward to her comeuppance when the series ultimately ends. Yeah, I wonder, is Julie going to remain on the bad list, or is she going to become more sympathetic? Because she keeps going back and forth. So I don't know what the if there's a happy ending in store for her. Well, you know, and I, again, it could be one of those situations where she stays on that evil list for much of the season, but then does have a situation where she is able to gain some redemption and, you know, maybe even die in the, you know, in Ooh. the uh, so. bold prediction. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing, believe it or not, <laughs> that that might be her, her fate, but so thankful that we had all that great feedback and sorry that the feedback form wasn't working. Hopefully that will be fixed in the future and we'll be able to hear from a lot of you who mentioned that you might want to get some uh, messages in there. I thought there was one from Bonita as well. Didn't Yoga Bon have one that she had put in? Anyway, Bonita, <laughs> we'll catch you on the next one. Not sure what happened there, but that's going to be it for this edition of the Extant Podcast. Keep up with show news and fan interaction on Twitter by following us at Extant GSM and join our Facebook group. It's growing at facebook.com slash groups slash Extant Podcast. And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of Extant episode four of season two entitled Cracking the Code. But in the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. Yeah, with this, these glitches, maybe you, you'd want to do some audio feedback instead, just for fun. We'd love it. But if you've enjoyed this episode of the Extant Podcast, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. And we'll talk to you next weekend. <laughs>